0: Mm-hmm. Welcome to a very special episode of the History of the Atlantic World podcast. I'm Jesse Weist, your caffeinated host. Thank you for joining us. Uh, With me today is Dr. Alita Metcalf, a professor of history at Rice University. Her areas of expertise include studying Rio de Janeiro, colonial Brazil, and the Atlantic world. If her name specifically sounds familiar to you, it might be on account of my episode, Inventing America, wherein uh, we discussed uh, the work in her previous book, Go-Betweens and the Colonization of Brazil, which is one of the, in my opinion, instrumental works on understanding early Brazil. Uh, Today, though, we are here to discuss her brand new book, Mapping an Atlantic World.
1: Dr. Metcalf,
0: Alida, if I may, thank you for taking Uh, it.
1: Alida, Alida. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's a very hard name, but if I train people, they get it.
0: (laughs) I really apologize. And my last, I I should have asked you that, um, that that you can tell I'm new at interviewing just from making that mistake right there. And especially because my last name is W-U-E-S-T, Weast. it is very difficult to pronounce, so I, I get that. Anyway, um, okay, well, before we get started, uh, in the show notes for this episode, I've placed three links, and the first of which is going to be really helpful for any of you listening out there, because uh, it's a link to Dr. Metcalf's very easy-to-navigate website, which has uh, a few of the images that you can find within her book, Mapping an Atlantic World, and it would be very helpful to go along with this discussion. Uh, The second is a link where you can buy this book because Mapping an Atlantic World would be an excellent gift for really any history nerds or map nerds, anybody, uh, people who are into art history. um, Just FYI, this is an awesome book. Uh, Finally, I've included a link to her academic bio so you can find links to her other publications if you're interested in that. Okay, well, my first question, I guess, is going to be a super easy one.
1: Uh, What's your book about? Great. Well, thank you so much, Jesse, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. It's my first ever podcast. Oh, I'm very excited about that, too. Oh, great. uh, uh, My book, Mapping an Atlantic World, is the story of how the Atlantic Ocean moves from the periphery to the center on world maps. And that occurs around the year 1500. And it really represents a paradigm shift in how the world was viewed. So what I'm doing in this map in this book is using maps as my primary sources to show how the Atlantic world comes into view and how it, it appears on maps.
0: Oh, that is awesome. Um, now, I, I, and I, I probably should have told you this earlier if I didn't, um, the audience here ranges from people like me who are just lifelong history nerds to people who are, 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 Really know what they're talking about, all the way to kids who uh, do not are aren't quite as um, uh, knowledgeable about some of this stuff. And so, some of these questions that I put down here, um, to, to I, I just want to say to the people listening out here, uh, if it sounds a little boring to you, I do apologize. Um, if you already know what a TO map is, for example, my next question. Um, But I love TO maps. I think they're really neat. And for people who don't know what a TO map is, would
1: you you tell us what that is? Sure. So we see the TO maps most in medieval Europe. And they get the name because they're laid out in an O, which represents the oceans, and a T, which divides the continents. So if you can imagine just Europe Africa, and Asia with a circle around it. The circle around it represents the oceans of the world and that's the O. And then the T separates these three continents of Africa, Asia, and Europe. And it's represented by the Mediterranean and the Nile River and the Don River. So that's how it's just a simple little way of saying that the map is laid out as if it's a T kind of on its side inside of an O.
0: Oh yeah, and I should mention, by the way, if you follow along on the link on Dr. Uh, uh, on Dr. Metcalf's blog, figure 1.1 uh, is, would be the image you, if you wanted to take a look at that. Um, it, it looks really funny. What is the purpose of that map? Because it can't possibly be to help anybody navigate.
1: Well, that's because in, in, in medieval Europe, the, the maps weren't maps in the way we think of them. They were places where knowledge was stored but it was knowledge in a much more symbolic, metaphorical sense. So the TO map typically had Jerusalem at the center, and, and the Mappa Mundi from the medieval times, and Mappa Mundi just means map of the world in Latin, they essentially told the history of Christianity. And so the, the map was not really so much a, a, a utilitarian document to get you somewhere as a way for you to understand the history of Christianity as it was used, uh, like the the famous Hereford Mapamundi in in Salisbury in England. It, 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 It tells the story of Christianity and it incorporates other things as well, but it's meant to kind of be a way for priests and brothers to kind of explain things to parishioners and congregants and they could see they could kind of visualize the world in that way.
0: Oh, that's uh, thank you for that. That's really cool. Um, okay, now in contrast, um, and and if you're if you're uh, listening and and checking out the website too, this would be Figure three point four. What I want to talk about specifically next, I guess, um, there are uh, I guess uh, I don't know. This would be the late medieval period. I don't know how far back these go back these nautical maps, but um, in contrast, these are very detailed, uh, I can tell, and 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 they look very good, I quote unquote useful, a useful map uh, to someone who is out on a, a boat. But, and I, maybe this is just that I don't really know a whole lot about maps, but just when you look at it, it looks like it's not exactly designed to be easy to be understood, even though it does have a lot of information in it. Um, I mean, is this a secret map? Like, who is using this? Uh, I mean, is this something that you could go buy in a store as a chart of the Mediterranean that would be highly detailed? Or is this just something that some merchant or some prince would be hiding away, I guess, um, somewhere?
1: Well, that's a great question. And this particular chart is the oldest chart in the collection at the Library of Congress. Oh, And and this brings me to a really important point, uh, which is the difference between a chart and a map. And my dad was a was a Navy man. And so yeah, I learned the okay, difference great. between a chart and a map very <laughs> oh, early. Yeah. But a chart is something that sailors use and it privileges the water. And so it typically has depths and gotcha. it's the navigation. Whereas a map is more about the land and what, what you find on the land. So a chart can be a map, but a map can't necessarily be a chart if, if you follow. Oh, great, them. yeah, yeah. So we're looking here at a chart. So this is a very old uh, Mediterranean chart. It is, as you said, uh, as you intuited, a utilitarian document, but it is hard to read if you're not uh, if you're not kind of introduced into what charts do. But if you actually look at the map, you can kind of you can kind of take it apart and understand how to read it. And um, here it's it's helpful to think in layers. Like modern maps today, using uh, made using uh, digital methods and GIS, you know, yeah. the map is constructed of layers. So this right. particular chart has a series of layers, and once you see them, you can read the chart more easily. So in this particular chart, there's a layer of names, there's the coastline layer, um, there's the layer of these lines that go across the top. Okay. So the yeah. lines that go across the top are known as the rum lines, R-H-U-M-B, rum, not R-U-M, like the drink. Uh, <laughs> those, those represent the directions of the compass. And that's what you need to match the map to your to how you're gonna navigate. Yeah. And then all of those little things that you see along the coastline, those are the names of the places. And so right. they're either in black ink or if they're important places like Rome, they're in red ink. And uh, then there's a few other things like islands, there's a scale. And so basically it's showing you the Eastern Mediterranean. You can see Italy, uh, you can see- uh, Yeah,
0: Italy is yeah. really, is pretty prominent there. you
1: you find Italy, the whole map, you see the, you see the whole chart makes sense. You see the coast. Yeah, yeah. So this, I, would, this would not have been secretive but but to get this you had to go to a chart maker who was an artisan okay who had a workshop in a in a port city in a place like Genoa or Naples or Venice or Lisbon uh, and you would just commission a chart you know they might have one on hand and but you might have to also order it and gotcha so merchants and sea captains would order charts
0: okay uh, that th- thank you for that because I I really was a, a little curious, and this is a, kind of related. It's specifically because uh, when I was uh, reading up and, and studying on uh, Henry the Navigator, Henry the Navigator, I guess yeah. quote unquote, uh, he really. After a while of reading some of this, I was like, you know, this is the mafia only <laughs> in like the 1400s. What they're it, it just there was something. It just seemed like and and and. And part of that, I guess, is just the uh, – what they were well, – obviously, what he was up to is just, you know, stealing people off of the coastline and stuff like that and selling them into slavery. But it just – anyway, it just um, – anyway, uh, it, 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 it really struck me as that this it really was, like, new knowledge, I guess, a, a little bit. And, and, of course, he was out in the Atlantic, I guess, or his navigators were out in the Atlantic. Um But I I just was kind of curious about kind of how that all started a little bit. Um,
1: Well, let let me comment on that quickly, because that's that's one of the important themes in in the chapter on chart makers, because basically the techniques for charting the Mediterranean, which go way back and nobody knows how far back. Oh, yeah. uh, But they're applied to the Atlantic. But the Atlantic is very different than the Mediterranean in the mediterranean you're never if you're a sailor you're never that you know far from the sight of land and there have gotcha. been generations and generations and generations of sailors in the mediterranean and the th- same thing is sort of true for some of the atlantic coastlines but the atlantic is so much bigger right and uh, also uh, when the portuguese start sailing below the equator you can't see the north star anymore and so all sorts of things have to change in order to map the Atlantic. And so the Portuguese chart makers started to uh, create charts for the Atlantic where they did some innovative things. So they would turn the chart so that they were longer rather than wider. If you think of the Mediterranean, it's, you know, awesome. it's long and wide. Uh, really? The Atlantic is, long, you know, with north on the top, it, it extends in a different direction. Um, and so they, they, they accumulated knowledge on uh, that, that they brought back, that were then added into charts. And so, you know, you have this gradual process of accumulating and storing information that makes its way onto charts. It's really important for opening up the Atlantic.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Now, uh, one feature that I find uh, really important on all of these charts is the that I wanted to make sure we just discuss is the compass rose. Uh, oh, yes. Great. Just because some of them are, are really just beautifully crafted, and I, you specifically compared to gemstones, which I thought was a, a really apt and, and just a, a neat metaphor, and what is the purpose of this, and why, why is, is are they so beautiful because artists, just, just as a simple uh, consequence of that artisans are crafting them, and this is someone who's like, well, I want to make sure that I guess I'm answering my own question almost on that, but I saw you, someone is just out there saying, I wanna make sure some more people wanna buy my map or something like that, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of scholarly discussion about this and nobody knows for sure, uh, but it's obvious in my view that the compass rose is the most important decorative element of a chart. Yeah. Uh, so basically it shows the different wind directions and the compass rose on a chart will also match the compass that's taken to sea. And so chart makers, for example, in Lisbon uh, also made the, the, the nautical compasses that were taken to sea. So you can kind of imagine a compass in the little box that you're carrying on your ship actually matching the rows on the sort of reinforcing the connection uh, between the two. Unfortunately, you know, we don't have any surviving compass, compasses from this early, this far back. Right. Um, but what the what the compass roses on the charts do and you find them on the Mediterranean charts as well as on the Atlantic charts is they're a decorative element and they're probably also a signature of the chart maker. Gotcha. Uh, so you, you uh, they, they kind of they, they kind of stand as a sort of as a sort of stamp for the for the uh, workshop. Right, okay, and, cool. But, but you do have, let me just make one more point about no, this, please. You, have, um, you have very plain charts like the chart we were talking about before, the, the, the chart from the Library of Congress of the Mediterranean right. uh, from, uh, from the 1300s. So that's not a decorated chart and nobody's interested in that chart as a work of art. You know, The only yeah. person interested in that chart is a sailor going to sea. But you start adding compass roses and you start adding a few cityscapes and maybe you add a few other little details of the landscape or maybe animals. And suddenly the chart becomes quite attractive. And so you have merchants who like to buy the charts, both to hang up in their offices or to give us gifts. And so you have really two traditions of chart making, one that's more decorative and artistic and one that's more utilitarian and practical. And so for the historian, uh, you know, very few charts survive, but the charts that are more likely to survive are those that are more decorative because they're aesthetically pleasing, they're more likely to have been saved. Oh, wow.
0: Um, okay, now, one of the most important themes in the book, I guess, is that maps and, and these charts of the Atlantic are changing around the year 1500, obviously as, as Europeans are going out to sea. Um, one person I really want to talk, I guess, specifically about, and maybe just a little generally about, uh, maybe who some of these, these map makers were, uh, other than this guy, um, is Juan De La Cosa, who I had never heard of until I started researching for, uh, you know, starting in for, an episode called 1492, and he kept, well, but he just kept popping up and up and up until eventually he is killed, but, from reading the sources, obviously, he kept getting hired as the pilot of these expeditions, so he, I could tell he's very important. Um, what I thought was really neat, and and you can see this um, uh, specifically, I think there's a few things on your website, but plate four in the section on plates is his uh, Carta, Univ- Carta Universal, if that's uh, in, in Latin, I guess, if I'm pronouncing that right, which dates to the year 1500. And I just thought it was really fascinating to, to really how well uh, a visual piece of history like that can help kind of really bring the past back uh, or it, further in the light like uh, uh, a little bit uh, for, for me personally. And um, anyway, other than, you know, wow, Juan de la Cosa is a lot smarter than I thought he was. Um, it's clear he plays a big role in how how these maps change. And would you like to talk about that? And uh, what is Juan de la Cosa's significance as a, as a chart maker, I guess I should say?
1: Okay, great. So Juan de la Cosa, uh, as you mentioned, was on the first expedition with Columbus, also on the second expedition. On the first expedition, he was a master of one of the ships. Uh, which one was it? The Santa Maria, I think? Yes, and it sank. So, you know, his his stock must have gone down badly. Right. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> sure, first yes. Voyage. And on the second voyage, he, he identifies himself as a master chart maker, which may well have been some sort of dem- demotion. Right. But we know that because Columbus is desperate to be finding the way into the Indian Ocean world and to China and to find the yeah. great pond. And so they're sailing along the Southern coast of Cuba and Columbus has almost reached the end, the most Western point of Cuba, not quite, but he decides he's seen enough and he makes everyone on the expedition swear you know, under all sorts of pains, like having their tongue cut off. Yeah,
0: right. Things. Yeah.
1: But this is the the longest, widest island. The no no island has been longer in, in, in width than this. So therefore, this must be a mainland. But that but Juan de la Cosa signs this. He has to. But that's where he give we find out that he considered himself a master chart maker. So we have this map signed by him. Uh, some scholars believe. That um, it was actually made by a group of people, but he did, he does sign it, his name is on it. Um, and it dates from the year 1500. Uh, and what's really interesting about it is, it's, it, as you can tell, it just, just leaps out at you. It's the first map that survived. And I should say that survived because there could have been others that we don't know about that shows the extent of the landmass in the Western Atlantic. So it really gives the sense of the, the two continents, you know, the North America and South America. So I think that's, that's why it's most significant. Um, for me, the, the map from a two years later shows this much more clearly. And that's the Carta del Cantino, which is plate six. So it's, it's constructed in a very similar way to Juan de la Cosa's Carta Universal, but yeah. the Carta del Cantino really shows the paradigm shift of how the Atlantic has really moved.
0: And I'm just bringing that one up, and oh yeah, yeah no, absolutely. That?
1: That's that? That? it's really it's much cool that. An,
0: certainly much more accurate and everything. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh,
1: this this map is you know we can look at this map today and understand it because yeah. this map underlies this paradigm shift that I've been talking about. So. The idea that the Atlantic occupies this central space—we um, see this repeated on maps, you know, for you know for years and years afterwards. And so that's why this map is so easy for us to read. It looks familiar.
0: Yeah, no, it's it, it beautiful. A, a lot of these, and, and the um, and uh, a lot of these are just so beautiful to take a look at. Sorry, I'm getting a little lost in in taking a look at that for a second. Um, okay. Uh, Now, now that I I, kind of brought up, you know, the idea that uh, somebody could just be out in the Atlantic and be, you know, the map maker, the chart maker, uh, you also... um, I can't remember what, what I was reading where I got this idea from exactly, but uh, the Atlantic, obviously, the water itself needs to be drawn, and depending on the medium, you talk about that different artists are contributing to how the water gets drawn, and and that leads me, I guess, to a broader uh, point. To what extent are these maps collaborative projects? You, you mentioned that some people might have also been working with Juan de la Cosa, that he wasn't Maybe just some Da Vinci out there in the high seas drawing a, a beautiful map. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, would you like to talk about that, please?
1: Sure. So here we need to go back to the difference between a chart and uh, uh, well no, we did a chart and a map and also a manuscript versus print. Okay. And so if you visualize the chart maker who's an artisan, not 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 all that well off, you know, kind of like artisans. Um in in early modern times, gotcha. um, but the, but the chart maker here's the important part can make every step of, of the chart or the or the map himself because yeah. herself maybe there were some women chart makers I haven't found any but they're basically they're basically painting on parchment on vellum which is made from animal skin so in the same way that you know the monk making an illuminated manuscript is working so too is the chart maker. It's the same tools, you know. Okay. Uh, but when you get to a printed map, it's very different because print involves a whole slew of artisans who are not the, the map maker. So the right. cartographer, uh, and the example that I use in, in my chapter on from manuscript to print is Martin Waldseemuller. And the Library of Congress has this phenomenal map on permanent display. By Martin Valsmuller right. in the Jefferson Wing that everybody should go and see when COVID's over, um, but this map was printed on twelve sheets of paper, so Valsmuller could draw the sketch of the map, could provide all the information on the map, but he could not physically create it. He needed a he needed these these these. You know, he needed the typesetter, he needed the woodcutter, he needed the designer, you know, somebody had to pull the the pages off the press and they were using a Gutenberg style press to make this map. And so it involved a much more complicated process to make a printed map. And so that's why the artisans start to become important because Waldseemuller can create the idea of the map and what its geography is going to look like and what its content is going to be. But the artisans have to translate that into how that's going to be a, a, a woodblock and a printed map. Gotcha. And so they start to influence the aesthetics of the map. And your point about the water is really interesting because how are you going to represent the water? And it's the artisans that are going to start to come up with the techniques for showing what the water's gonna look like. So you have lots of hands going into a printed map, um, which makes it distinctive from the manuscript chart, which is made in a workshop with the master chart maker, maybe working with an apprentice or with an illuminator. If it's a high-end chart, you might have an artist who can actually paint beautiful little vignettes directly on on the, uh, the vellum. But, but the printed map is a whole nother ball game because it requires the, the printer's shop to really pull it off. And Waldseemuller's map only survives in one copy. Uh, and it survives in one copy because it was bound into a book. But it's quite possible that these were then painted. So Waldseemuller's map is black and white. When you go into the Library of Congress to look at it, or if you look it up on their website, you'll see it's black and white. But it's possible, in fact, I think it's probable that the whole thing was painted after it was printed. And so you had this enormous map that was the size of a wall that right. you know, could, could have been, you know, could have been attached to a wall or it could have been mounted on a on a large board. So it was a massive, it was a massive thing.
0: That's really neat. Um, you also have some examples of, uh, some globes that that are being produced at this time. Um, and, and so these obviously kind of have to account for the Atlantic and, and who I I guess is, uh, who who is using these globes? Who is making those? I guess this is a similarly probably a collaborative project, but I, I want, I thought it was pretty neat. Um, I guess the the way that the the, the maps were, were drawn in and and then kind of like pasted together, I guess, around a globe is if that's if I'm getting that right.
1: Yes. yes. Um, I mean, if you want to talk more about
0: that, I just thought that was a neat a uh, neat process. Uh,
1: and... Sure. Sure. So so globe making is very old. It goes back to uh, ancient Greeks who were making globes. Um, Globes are extremely fragile. Maps are fragile and tend to tend to get thrown away and disappear and worn out and so forth, but globes are even more fragile and so we we have very few surviving globes. Waldseemuller created a globe at the same time that he created his world map and although the globe doesn't survive, the globe gores do and the globe gores it consists of a printed sheet, as you were saying, that you would cut out and then paste over a ball. So you have to imagine a kind of a paper shea sort of ball that then they would paste, they would cut out and then paste the, uh, the globe gores around and then they would paint Whoa. it. And in, one of, in, in, one, in, the new, in the new material on my website, we have yeah. reconstructed a Waldseemuller's globe as a digital model and uh, you can actually see what it looks like. You can see it spin.
0: Oh, cool, cool.
1: That's really cool. Um, But unfortunately, you know, the globe itself doesn't uh, doesn't exist, but this also would have been painted. So the first step was printing the sheet. And then um, I don't know when they would have painted it, uh, whether they, before they cut it out or after, but eventually it goes over the, over the ball. And it was a very attractive uh, little thing that you could buy. So you could hold the globe in your hand and then look at the huge wall map that he made. So it was a really an astonishing uh, production. Yeah, that's
0: really cool. Uh, I I keep meaning to say in between between your answers that I want to i I want to apologize if I call a chart a map a map a chart uh, that I could very well call it. <laughs>
1: I do it all the time. <laughs> and, and, yeah, just
0: anybody listening too, though. Just uh, I Just I, I. I'm sure I'm I'm making a bunch of mistakes.
1: As long as as long as as long as you understand that there's a difference in the usage of a chart. Yes. No, those. that was excellent. No,
0: I thank you very much. That was really helpful for me. Um, there's a lot of and now there's a lot of birds and specifically parrots on the portuguese uh-huh. maps of brazil and africa and uh obviously i, I think at one level it's kind of easy to see why is because there are a lot of birds that live uh, in parts of in brazil and africa but there's a lot of birds that live everywhere is why why are people using birds specifically as uh as simple is this like somebody used one and then other people are copying uh that idea just saying like oh that's a great symbol um or what what's up with the birds
1: <laughs> great question no a, a great question and and the birds first got me interested in this whole project oh wow so beautiful, beautiful um so first of all um parrots are not native to europe okay and all the parrots that are in europe have been introduced through trade gotcha. so there had been you know trade you know back in Greek and Roman times when when parrots were brought in from places like India but you know by the time by 1500 by, by the years immediately before 1500 there weren't any parrots in Europe but when these voyages start returning from Africa and from India these exotic birds start getting reintroduced and, Right. Uh, and so, when Brazil is discovered in 1500, um, the, the 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 accounts that we have, which are only three of them, that describe uh, the landing in 1500, but they all mention these birds that are very large. And so, those are the scarlet macaws that are actually painted on the Cantino world chart. And it's it's probable. I think it's highly likely. That they were painted from real birds that had been brought back from. The oh, city. cool! Yeah. And uh, Columbus's um, Columbus's logs are filled f- filled with descriptions of parrots as well. So, you know the 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 Spaniards and the Portuguese and the French, you know, when they arrived in the Americas, they were just shocked at how green it was and how many birds there were, and then so those were the first images that were used to describe the Americas was how green it was. And these enormous flocks of parents all over the Caribbean, Brazil. I mean, you can imagine how beautiful it was to their eyes, especially coming from Spain or Portugal, which are pretty dry uh, climates. Um, so, that's, that's, so the birds start to represent specific places. And on okay. the Carta del Contino, the 1502 world map that we talked about a minute ago, there are three different parrots on that map. There's a certain kind of parrot for Brazil that's the scarlet macaw. There's the African gray parrot, which is a parrot that's well known to parrot enthusiasts, and there's the Senegalese parrot. And so the Senegalese parrot appears in West Africa. The African gray appears farther south in the in its natural habitat, and the scarlet macaw's uh, macaw's appear in in Brazil.
0: Oh, that's really cool um I'm gonna, now i want to i want to stay on i guess on, on another image that's in the map of Brazil i guess that show there's also a lot of images of human sacrifice there and um nowadays and i guess if you're looking at this here in 2020 they don't appear quite as gruesome to us but i would want to remind anyone who is listening that in the 16th century you probably didn't get to see a whole lot of brand new images uh all the time anyway like that and something like that might have been just quite um i, I don't know if something like that would have been almost kind of scandalous to some and, and horrifying to some of the people who would have you know if you're I'm, I'm trying to envision someone back in, in, in Germany or Italy who just uh, is saying like, oh, so what's going on here? Oh, Brazil. What is what? Um, what? I guess, what does this mean? I, I, would you like to get into what this, this does uh, to, to, to Europe as far as how they perceive uh, Brazil?
1: Yes, well, that, that's, the, uh, that's, that's a really important question and, and one of the huge takeaways, I think, because as we were just talking about the birds, um, early images that are placed on maps about uh, the Americas are the color green, like on the Juan de la Cosa map that we talked about, where the Americas are all this deep green, the birds appear uh, in Brazil, uh, but later this, the, mo- the more striking image is the cannibalist image. Um, and it takes off and has, and gets repeated on map after map after map. And this is one of the things that happens um, in the, in, with maps is that chart makers and map makers copy each other. Mm-hmm. And so they copy images and certain images start to stick and cannibalism is one of the images that starts to stick. And this was a very difficult chapter to write and I must have rewritten this chapter three times, the chapter on cannibalism, because mm-hmm. as you're as you're suggesting, it makes a huge difference that this becomes one of the defining images of the Americas, that it is the land of the cannibals, because right. it justifies all kinds of things. It justifies enslaving, indigenous people. It justifies wars, it justifies conquest. And so the more that image gets established and copied, the more it cements this kind of European idea of, oh, well, we can go and conquer these lands because the people living there deserve it. You know, they're oh barbaric. And Be- so it's a, very, it's, it's a very damning image that gets associated with the Americans. And because of the way imagery gets copied from map to map, it repeats itself over and over again, especially on printed maps. So the first printed map that has this image of cannibalism is 1516. It's Waldseemuller's second map. So he does his first map in, in world map in 1507 okay. and the second world map in, in 1516. And on the Carta Marina, there is this image of cannibalism over Brazil Um, and that map because it's a printed map it has many more viewers you know a manuscript chart or a manuscript chart of the world is going to have relatively few viewers but once you have a printed map you know in a thousand copies many 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 people more people are going to see it and printers start to recognize that they can make money off of maps and so they start to reprint maps and reprint reprint editions of maps changing just a few things and so the the image of the cannibal gets reproduced over and over and over again and so it becomes a common way of seeing the Americas and it's a very negative and destructive image that gets stamped onto the Americas and 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 here's also part of what maps do maps proclaim truths if you go here, this is what you will find, you know? So okay. the map is saying, if you go to the Americas, this is what you will find. And so right. it sort of kind of starts to just pre-structure how people, what people are going to expect to find.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, no, that's yeah, that's a very good point. Um,
1: uh, okay, well, folks, I, I think that's
0: all the questions that I've got regarding uh, mapping an Atlantic world. Uh, Alida, I'm getting that right? Yes, perfect. Um, but before we go, before I let you go, I have one last question for you. Uh, sure. um, I've got an episode that I'm, I'm working on. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to release it. I Hopefully, uh, if I get uh, all my editing done tonight, uh, to, tonight. so it's out on uh, El Dia de los Muertos uh, on the fall of the Mexica. And I've noticed a lot of the books written about the conquest of Mexico, conclude with who was responsible, and all of them, uh, even Prescott, who cannot stand giving credit to um, American uh, indigenous people, I don't think, uh, give varying degrees of credit to the interpreters, and spe- specifically to a woman, uh, Marina or Lama Alinche, I'm not, you know, like Montezuma or Montezuma or whatever his name is, I'm not 100% sure we I don't know is what the current correct name would be. But they all say that she's like kind of a critical piece to the puzzle. And I don't think she gets enough credit. So just on the eve, I guess, of me uh, releasing my episode, um, I think you're the perfect person to ask this question. Uh, How much credit should interpreters like like Marina, for example, get for the conquest of the Americas if we were going to – like say, like Hugh Thomas, say at the end, this is all Cort, you know, Cortez is the critical piece. Um, well, how, you know, to to what credit, I guess, do, do uh, interpreters deserve to this? I guess the the recipe of conquest of the Americas, I guess.
1: Oh well, that's a great question, uh, and La Malinche is, I think, a a huge advantage that. Cortez has in the conquest of Mexico. But I think you have to think of it in terms of stages. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, the conquest of Mexico begins from Cuba, when right. Cortez is leaving Cuba with a small group of men uh, without proper authority from the governor of Cuba. And they arrive on the Yucatan Peninsula near where present-day Isla Mujeres is, and it's a Mayan region and they pick up two interpreters who are Spaniards who speak Mayan. So they now negotiate uh, between Spanish and Mayan. Okay, They pick up uh, Dona Marina as she's later called farther up on the Tabasco coast and she speaks Mayan and Nahuatl and so she becomes essential for being able to interpret with the Mexica. So she speaks the language of Tenochtitlan, and she can speak Mayan. So you have this interpretation going where using the two Spanish men who could speak Mayan, Héronimo de Aguilar, and I'm not sure the other one's name, um, you sort of have this the stage translation of you go from Spanish to Mayan, from Mayan to Nahuatl and then back, back again. Uh, but uh, if you look at some of the accounts of the conquest of Mexico that are written from the uh, uh, the Mexica point of view, or the Aztec point of view, you can see that she's often positioned between Cortez and Montezuma. And, um, and sometimes when they would be addressing Cortez, they would, you know, kind of address Malinche as if she was kind of like Cortez, because she was the mouthpiece. So she's very important in, in facilitating the Spanish entrance to Tenochtitlan. And once they're in Tenochtitlan, she's very uh, she's very uh, influential. Right. Because Cortez is trying to take Tenochtitlan, which is a more magnificent city than any of them have ever seen, you know, without yeah. destroying the city. And so she, so as long as there's a negotiated sort of contact going on, she's super important. That all changes, though, um, when, um, when, the, when, when, uh, on the, the famous night of La Noche Triste, when the Spaniards have to withdraw from Tenochtitlan. And Marina, Dona Marina escapes along with okay. uh, Cortez and others. But following La Noche Triste, that's when smallpox arrives in Tenochtitlan. Right. And so, you know, so she's important in this early phase, but disease plays a huge role in decimating. Uh, the population of Tenochtitlan because yeah, smallpox I know, I know, it's, is, really. it's a little bit like COVID spread We're through it. the air but you know unlike COVID 30 percent of people who get exposed to smallpox you know get sick and it's got a very or, or or die it's got a very high mortality rate and then the final you know the final fall of Tenochtitlan is a military battle where the yeah. Spanish are advancing in on the causeways Uh, as described by many chroniclers. So Malinche is not important there. So I think if you think of it in terms of stages, you can see how she's really significant in the beginning, and then she's gonna become significant later on after the fall, because they're gonna go back to this kind of negotiated ways to try and establish their power. Awesome. Because they have to try and rule over the defeated peoples in the city. So she will become Im- important post, you know, post fall of the city.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I can't, yeah, I found she is very. I mean, I, it, I just found she's very important, and it, like, I, it's like it's obviously, I think it's. It, I mean, obviously, both Spanish and Mexican society were just so sexist. It was hard. It, it it's almost like I, I won, Sometimes I wonder if, uh, for example, like Cortez is very good at getting allies. And uh, here you uh, I, I wonder how much of that is is, uh, her, is is she responsible for the way she translates possibly? I, I did, don't know if we would ever know the answer, but there's times where, where all the people who would be enemies of the of the emperor um, you know, they all hear about, I, I think about how great the Spanish are and how every how this alliance is going to work out. And you know, you know, I wonder if 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 maybe it's it's possible um, if if stuff like that is going on because she wasn't born uh, uh, a Maya, she was sent there, I guess, at some point, and I, I just wonder if he, you know um, if she may have had uh, if she. A grudge, I guess. There's, there's was one point in the sources where she definitely she taught. I mean, she just goes out of her way. I, I guess she's up on a rooftop of or a temple or a, a pyramid something, and she's yelling at the Mexica like you fool, like you should feed the Spaniards or whatever she's say. They make it a point that she's, uh, I guess, berating them uh, almost like, uh, and it, it just made me. I guess I start thinking about. Uh, she's certainly not a neutral. Observer, I guess, of the conquest.
1: Yeah, um, that, that's, that comes along with the, the territory of being a go-between. go between. Yeah. So, go betweens are, are figures that are often very vulnerable. Right. And they always take a side. And so she chose the Spanish side. And, and the, if you go back and read Bernal Diaz, uh, it, it, it seems as though she was born of a noble family in Simpoala. And so she was educated as a young girl, and so that's part of why she becomes so important. Not only just she right. speaks speak, Waddle, but she, um, you know, she's got the kind of uh, she's got the kind of class status. Not that she has status, but she knows the language. She knows kind right. of the, the the higher status yeah. language that's going to appeal to the nobles and the um, the kings. Uh, that Cortez is going to come into contact with in a way that Heronimo de Aguilar, this poor Spaniard who's been living right. as a slave among the Maya, can't possibly do that.
0: Gotcha. Uh, yes. And
1: so, and also I think too, you know, loyalty, we think about loyalty in different ways as modern people do. And in the past, who you give your loyalty to is was was probably based on other kinds of calculations. Than right. Movies. And so, yeah. yeah, she chose her loyalty to Cortez. Um, well, and I mean, I mean, as
0: terrible as the the Spanish were, I mean, the Mexicans do not come across as uh, sympathetic in many, in, in, in some way. And I mean, at that, I guess during the final days of the conquest, actually, they do come across to me as a little sympathetic when they're hold up and they refuse to <laughs> surrender, and you're just, uh, but. You know, there's so many other peoples in Mexico who are like, "Oh yeah, great! <laughs> I've been waiting to teach them a lesson." That you know, it's not, it's um, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of a, a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of situation. Uh, not that to, to excuse um, what the Spanish are doing. Uh, Okay, well, that's all for me today, folks. Uh, I don't want to waste too much of your time, Alida, and um, thank you for chatting with us. It was delightful to meet you. Folks, the holiday season is upon us, even in the corona time, it's true. Once again, the book is Mapping an Atlantic World. You can find a link to that in the show notes. It would make an excellent gift, in my humble opinion. There's also links to Dr. Metcalf's blog, uh, and uh, so you can check out some of the other stuff she's written. All right. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. And one last thing before we go, in case you didn't know, this podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Network. Big Heads Media is sort of like the Netflix of podcasting. What they do is penetrate the deep dark forest of the internet, find the best podcasts, hew them down, bring forth the finest of timbers for people who enjoy podcasts. Needless to say, that means we are part of an awesome lineup of history shows like Her American Story, for example. This show is pure mahogany. It's about the stories of first and generation American women. Here's a promo for that show. Do you love a good story? Her American Story is a podcast for anyone who loves a good story. First and second generation American women share their American experience. Sharing our stories helps us to relate to one another, build understanding, as well as provide representation for those that need it most. I grew up in a smaller American town and lacked representation in my community and simply in media at that time. I created something I
1: wanted to hear. I hope this podcast reaches those that need it most as well as serves as a collection of simply interesting stories. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HerAMStory. Everyone has the story. Share yours with me. Email me at heramericanstory at gmail.com.
0: From the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand, cause it's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian, pirate ship. So, enjoy your trip. Cause it's immunity.